This is Fine, episode 1.15, Contraventional Wisdom. So Jerry, today we're going to talk about a rogue NSC officer from the military who's renowned as a pathological liar. Uh, A secret meeting held before the election between NSC staff and a foreign government a State Department completely cut out of the loop, and questions about what the president knew and when did he know it. So what are we talking about? Uh, We are, of course, talking about the Iran-Contra scandal uh, that spans the years of roughly 1983 through 1986 or 7, depending on how you count those gaps. So we're right at the uh, 30-year anniversary of, uh, of that event. And I think one of the theses that I'd like to advance uh, in this episode is that we are living today in the world that Iran-Contra made. Um, that we are experiencing today many of the consequences of uh, the way that Iran-Contra played out, the way that it was investigated, the legal outcomes. Um, all of that is, you know, to, to some extent, that that's the inheritance of um, Iran-Contra is what we are experiencing today with the Trump administration. I think that's entirely right. Um, we read uh, a book uh, by someone named Malcolm Byrne on the Iran-Contra affair. And uh, early, early in that book, he quotes Charles Freed, who was a solicitor general for Reagan, as saying that the wrong lessons had been learned from Watergate in terms of uh, actually preferring less congressional oversight and more power invested in the executive. And I would say that the wrong lessons have been learned from Iran-Contra as well in terms of that congressional oversight having even less teeth and the president and the executive even being more, uh, I think, independent of any consequences for for foreign policy actions. Just to uh, put a little context on it, uh, Malcolm Byrne is, uh, he's not just some random dude. He is a, uh, he's affiliated, I believe, he's a professor at Georgetown. He's also affiliated, uh, he's been, I think, maybe even the head of the National Security Archive which is kind of the premier uh, institution for documenting these kinds of things. So, I mean, this is a, a highly credible uh, book that came out in 2014. It's called Iran-Contra, Reagan's Scandal and the Unchecked Abuse of Power uh, that relies on a lot of documentation, actually, that wasn't available to Lawrence Walsh when he was special counsel investigating uh, Iran-Contra. Yeah, it's probably the most, it is the most up-to-date piece of research uh, that brings together all kinds of information, um, all the publicly available information about Iran-Contra. That's right. And I, and I think importantly, uh, includes many findings, which, as you noted, came out after uh, the, the special counsel investigation, which I think would have played more into the question of uh, certainly Vice President Bush and then President Bush's uh, culpability for some of the actions in the Iran-Contra scandal, uh, as well as uh, clear evidence of lying by uh, former uh, National Security Council head uh, uh, Bud McFarlane and uh, the infamous uh, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, um, because there are just uh, documents in their own hand, uh, which which reveal some of their lies to Congress. One of the interesting things about, um, I think, Iran-Contra is that, you know, we, we sort of mentioned, dropped a hint about this uh, on the outro of the previous show, which was that it was kind of an underappreciated uh, scandal in American history, it doesn't have the 
neat kind of wrap up and the uh, very nice uh, dramatic arc that Watergate had. It didn't deal with uh, people who were quite as, I don't know, uh, I don't want to, I don't, I don't know if like incendiary or flamboyant or just like out, like just outrageous in the way that like the Nixon White House tapes revealed him to be. Uh, North is probably the closest approximation to that, but overall, a lot of these people just come across as like some pretty dull operatics and like not terribly interested in interesting in and of themselves. And there's a bit, uh, you know, I actually didn't know know this when I sort of form, was formulating this, but at the conclusion of Byrne's book, uh, he says something very similar. So here, here's Byrne on his the conclusion of Iran-Contra. What had begun as Watergate-style political drama had been reduced to legal wrangling with little hope of a satisfactory resolution. Amid the welter of accusations from all sides and the partisan spin control, it was impossible to find a public consensus even on who the rogues and the white knights were. The storyline itself was not always apparent. There were too many moving parts, too much unfamiliar about the countries and issues involved. Pundits longed for the shapely narrative of Watergate with its heroes and villains, its dramatic unities, its deus ex machina in the Oval Office taping system. But these plot elements eluded Iran-Contra, which for all of its Shakespearean potential played out like an episode of washington reality tv yeah i, I mean i think that's a very apt uh description of the con of, of the scandal obviously and i think what really ties that home is that despite the indictments of uh many senior people in the reagan white house uh including the former um, dci who's in charge of central intelligence um the former secretary of defense casper weinberger um and and many others um, basically, no one goes to jail, no one gets punished, and it never reaches up to uh, Reagan and, and Bush, even though it's uh, at least very clear from the evidence that Byrne presents that they were much more active uh, in the scandal than, than uh, was suggested at the time. I mean, perhaps it, it, the best thing to do is just go through a short narrative of the scandal yeah, for, for those that. who are unfamiliar with it. Jerry, do you want to start it off? Or? Sure. So... Iran-Contra, as the hyphen might lead you to believe, is actually an amalgamation of two uh, initially entirely separate uh, scandals, I guess you could call them, although they were really like they began as operations. Illegal and, schemes to evade Congress uh, control of foreign policy. Correct. Initially, there was no actual connection between the Iran side and the Contra side. The Iran side of things... Uh, had to do with a number of things, including the, you know, obviously the overthrow of the Shah in 1979. I'm sorry, 1977, and then the hostage crisis uh, during the Carter presidency in 1979. Also, an important part of this story is that Iran and Iraq were at war um, at this time, sort of fighting for control of like, you know, preeminence within the Gulf. And one of the objectives of uh, American foreign policy at the time was kind of to keep Iran and Iraq fighting each other without, uh, you know, necessarily having either one gain the upper hand. That was thought to be, uh, you know, potentially destabilizing to uh, the Gulf side, uh, to, to the Persian Gulf. And, and real concern, too, about Soviet involvement. There right. was a mistaken view within the Reagan White House by Hawks that the Soviet in invasion of Afghanistan, rather than sort of a, a rearguard action and at the end of the uh, Soviet Union's attempt to maintain empire, was actually the start of an aggressive policy, and Iran was a domino that could tip. Right. And Iraq was a Soviet client state. Uh, it was fielding armies that were uh, backed by uh, Soviet, uh, Soviet armor, Soviet technology. 
And uh, occasionally, depending on who was winning, it was also uh, an American client state. So in 1983, Donald Rumsfeld goes to uh, goes to Iraq and concludes, you know, a uh, sort of an agreement to help uh, the Iraqi forces behind the scenes. But uh, at, at a certain point, it becomes clear that like, not clear, but people begin to suspect that Iran could be losing the war and uh, they're there forms like this idea that, okay, actually we should reinforce Iran to prevent Iraq from gaining uh, supremacy. And this view is encouraged actually by the Israelis. So the Israelis uh, in, in the early 1980s have a coalition government between labor and Likud. Um, and Shimon Peres uh, basically has people under him who are, are very involved with trying to uh, restart Israeli-Iranian relations basically through uh, possibly covert sales of of arms to Iran um, as, as again an important thesis of sort of that Israel had which was also a containment thesis by basically making allies with non-arab states that surrounded the Gulf right and but but the problem here is that Iran is a known sponsor of state is a state sponsor of terrorism um, therefore there are all these prohibitions on sales of uh, military hardware to Iran. And in addition to all of this, Iranian-affiliated entities, namely Hezbollah, which is operating in Lebanon, has uh, taken hostage a number of Americans. And so this combination of things together provides a kind of uh, point of entry for for behind-the-scenes operators in the American government, uh, namely... um, Robert McFarlane, who is kind of this uh, figure around which the axis of the whole scandal actually turns in the beginning. Um, It provides a point of entry for them to start talking with Iranians about two things. One of them is to uh, free these hostages that are being held in Lebanon by Hezbollah. And the second is to kind of try and figure out a way to make contact, so they think, with uh, so-called moderate elements within within Iran with the uh, with the goal of sort of preventing the Iranian army from collapsing partially, you know, in in its war with Iraq, but also to find a way to uh, essentially overthrow the Iranian government. So they're looking for people who are going to be able to um, basically, you know, say that they're going to overthrow the current uh, government headed by Ayatollah Khomeini and install a government that would be friendly to U.S. interests. The basic law that any of these exchanges would would fall afoul of is something called the Arms Export Control Act, or AECA, which will tie into both sides of the Iran-Contra scandal and and prevents the U.S. from shipping arms to uh, any country not explicitly authorized by Congress, especially countries who are, as Jerry noted, state sponsors of terror, or those transfers being accomplished through third-party countries. So it, it's clearly uh, arms transfers of this type are, are considered are, are, are illegal by, by dictate of Congress. Um, the other thing to note here um, is that the Iranian channel is not being uh, secured by uh, McFarlane, who's, who's the NSC at the time, uh, NSC head at the time. Um, <coughs> it's not being secured through Iranian government officials. Instead, there's a fixer who's working with um, actually uh, Israelis and a crooked Saudi billionaire. Um, And this guy's name is Gorbanifar. And basically, it appears that everyone thinks he's a incredible pathological liar. And he proves to be, uh, but keeps on relying on him anyway, because he tells them what they want to hear. 
Yeah, so Gorbanifar passes himself off as having access to the highest levels of the Iranian government. Uh, this is obviously attractive from the NSC standpoint because they can't carry on these conversations with the Iranians, uh, you know, in in sort of like in the light of day, uh, because you know the formal position of the U.S. government in Iran is that we hate Iran very much, and so the um, what you know, Gorbanifar provides this back channel to people that he says, you know, are actually like highly placed in the Iranian government. Of course, nobody at the NSC actually knows anything about the Iranian government uh, directly because none of them are experts in Iran. And unsurprisingly, when uh, Gorbanifar is interviewed by the CIA about his connections at some point during the story, uh, it turns out that, you know, he's completely full of shit. And uh, not only that, but, you know, as we'll cover later, uh, he's been lying not only to the Americans, but also to the Iranians, which he, you know, which he does have contact with. I mean, he is Iranian himself. Um, but the expectations that he is feeding to both sides are just completely misaligned. I mean, he's essentially in this to pocket money for himself. And I think, I mean, so literally the CIA tries to burn him repeatedly. I think at one point the book describes he fails a polygraph, and it's not like he just, you know, sort of fails. He fails 13 of 15 questions. The only two which he gets by with not appears to be lying are his name and his birthplace, which is a truly amazing detail. And and if this story sounds at all familiar, uh, then, uh, I mean, this is this is sort of part, of part of this recurring theme that, you know, we're witnessing history sort of first time is tragedy, second time is farce. Um, this is the story of Ahmed Chalabi, uh, noted, uh, you know, also known as Curveball, uh, who, you know, was supposed to deliver... Uh, this, these connections with uh, moderate Iraqi resistance in 2003 or 2004, whenever this was. And, you know, oh, this was this guy was our source. Uh, he knew all the stuff about uh, about, you know, the Iraqi government. Of course, all that turns out to be fabricated. C- Curveball is Al-Janabi. He was just Chalabi was also feeding uh, false information. Oh, was it, it was a curveball was a different person. Curveball's a different person. Cur- okay, my bad. So so he was not curveball, but he was feeding false information to uh, uh, to US intelligence. And I think one of the tragic things actually about this encounter is the Iran side of the scandal, which which we will get to the meat of in a second, um, you know, ends in a there's this amazing scene in the book where uh, Gorbanifar is very upset that another Farsi speaker is finally involved because he's literally been able, uh, as the only person who speaks English and Farsi in some of these meetings, just to lie like continuously, which is sort of fascinating. But they there's finally a meeting, a very bizarre, uh, almost comical meeting where McFarlane and associates fly to Tehran on a uh, out out of Israel actually under Irish passports. Um, and uh, and meet with Iranian officials. And I think one of the tragedies actually of it is that arguably they were not talking to the wrong people in Iran. It's just that Gorbanifar had lied so much on both sides and also overpromised in terms of what each side could deliver. Like if channels under the Reagan administration had wanted to be made to moderate elements, um, not obviously elements who would overthrow Khomeini, that's absurd. But, you know, they did talk to people who were in clear contact with Mir Hussein Massavi, who was the leader of the Green Revolution later in 2009. They talked to Mehdi Karoubi, who was another prominent reformist, um, his brother. They talked to Hassan Rouhani, who's actually the current 
pr- uh, prime minister, or sorry, current president of Iran. So it's sort of like they talk to, where at the end we're talking to representatives, also representatives of Rasanjani, who's always sort of been a centrist Iranian. Um, they did, in fact, create a diplomatic structure uh, at the very end that probably would have been valuable if it were able to be maintained in terms of these are actually the people in the Iranian government uh, who who one would want to be talking to if one were having various different diplomatic uh, talks or, or back channels to, to dial down aggression. Um, but it was all done in, in this context of a totally criminal farce to try and make an arms deal or some skim. Right. So, um, and, you know, the, so that's the... Um Iranian side of the equation. Right. Sorry. The, the like the actual details. Um, the Israelis were going to give them anti-aircraft missiles. Then the U.S. was going to resupply Israel for those missiles. Clear violation of law. Absolutely explicitly forbidden. The Iranians were supposed to release hostages. They get to Tehran. It becomes clear that the Iranians actually do not have the authority to release the hostages because they don't control Hezbollah like that. Also, they thought that they were getting far more material in exchange for uh, hostage release. Um, and the deal falls apart. Right. So, so that's the, um, uh, that's the Iranian side of the equation. Now for the Contra side of the equation, what happens in, uh, Nicaragua in 1979 is that uh, the longstanding, so Nicaragua was, uh, for a long time for, uh, 20 years, actually in the, from 1912 to like 1933 occupied by us Marines, um, when they leave, uh, the control control passes to this autocratic the autocratic regime of the Somoza family. In the 1950s, a, a rebellion against the Somozas is led by uh, a guy named uh, Sandino. Uh, that rebellion is put down, but uh, you know, 20 or 30 years later, uh, the the rebellion flares up again with. Um, you know, this Marxist-Leninist group, called, which calls itself the Sandinistas in, in honor of Sandino, leading uh, the rebellion against uh, the Somoza family. Again, this time the Somozas are ousted um, and they flee the country and the Sandinistas become the government of Nicaragua. Uh, this is uh, obviously unacceptable uh, to uh, the powers that be in the United States at the time. And um, there's, uh, you know, Byrne provides all, a whole bunch of citations about how uh, n- numerous actors in the U.S. government were saying it's better to violate the law than to acknowledge the existence of a, you know, a Marxist regime in Central America. But- this is a recurring theme, by the way. Reagan is quoted in the book as saying that, and this is about the Iranian hostages, not about the Contras, but he makes similar statements. You know, I'd rather be impeached uh, than not do everything I can to, you know, insert, save the hostages, insert uh, you know, support the Contras and fight communism. Visiting hours are on Wednesday. I mean, they really had an a, a explicit comments that they were above the law and doing so for a higher purpose. Right. And the Contras are, you know, the remaining opposition forces to the Sandinista government. One of the problems is that the Contras are not actually a single force. There are two of them. There are two, uh, two major groupings of Contra forces, one based in the north uh, near the border with Honduras and one based in the south near the border with Costa Rica. This is significant because it's going to uh, create numerous frictions down the road. 
And and I think actually, if you want to again look at modern day analogies, it's sort of like the U.S. definitely has not learned its lesson about any covert action supporting rebel groups because providing arms to disparate rebel groups to try and overthrow a government that you don't like for ideological reasons, i.e., like I don't know Syria for example, it it had it's it's very very difficult to do even if you have legal authorization to do so. Now imagine trying to do it illegally on a shoestring. Uh, and, and again, it's it sort of, maybe it's repeated as farce, but, but, uh, this time it's, it's almost, it was farce first and then maybe repeated as tragedy. The main obstacle to, uh, the United States government's actions in, uh, Central America is this thing called the Boland Amendment. Now there are actually two Boland Amendments, but they're fairly similar in, in content. And, uh, what the Boland Amendments both say basically is that it is, uh, it's, it's illegal to aid the, uh, rebel forces, meaning the Contras, in Nicaragua in any way. So basically, like, you can't send them money, you can't send them materiel, you can't, uh, send them, um, you know, uh, logistical assistance. All of that is forbidden. Um, and the, the Boland Amendment, you know, passes as a, as a rider to an appropriations bill in 1983 and again in 1984. And at the time that this all kind of picks up, it is, you know, it's the law of the land and it's the thing that Oliver North is going to spend a lot of time trying to evade. Right. There there are a couple amazing things about Boland 1. Boland 2 passed a little more closely. Boland 1 was passed 411 to 0 in the House. So this is not like, you know, some rogue congressman who were trying to restrict the forces of, of anti-communism. There had, it has explicit reference to... Uh, military activities to overthrow the government of Nicaragua or any support for such. So there's no way to really avoid that. And also it goes out to name, you know, anyone operating in intelligence agencies or in the military. And this actually becomes a key question on the evasion uh, of whether, oh, did they know what they were doing was illegal? It It's pretty obvious they knew what they were doing was illegal, but there's a half-hearted argument at some points during the scandal to argue that the NSC is is itself uh, not a uh, intelligence agency. Um, that that's clearly contravened by, among other things, Executive Order twelve triple three, which is the nineteen eighty one executive order that that governs uh, the president's uh, uh, command of covert activities. But even if it weren't, uh, you know, explicitly described there, the NSC is a coordinating. Uh, factor for intelligence that's absurd not not to count them and and it doesn't matter because they involve the cia in these illegal schemes anyway so but but this is at least a, a point that that uh reagan defenders have the the strategy which uh which north decides to uh go with uh for helping the contras what, what he decides to do is that he starts looking for third-party money uh essentially to funnel aid to um uh, to the rebel forces in nicaragua um, and he's also involved in coordinating uh, cooperation agreements with both Honduras and Costa Rica and to some extent El Salvador, uh, because the whole idea is to be able to supply these rebel forces uh, in, with, with arms and materiel in the field. Uh, what North ends up doing, what, what he does first is he starts looking for uh, people who are sympathetic to the cause uh, to either donate money or otherwise route money to the rebel forces. So he tracks down a member of the Saudi royal family uh, and essentially prevails upon him to transfer about $32 million to uh, to the Contras over the course of the year. He's also running a 
um, logistics operation to coordinate uh, the use of airstrips in multiple neighboring countries to deliver the material that the uh, contractors are going to buy with this money to the troops in the field. And he's also running a uh, a kind of um, criminal enterprise. A, well, a criminal enterprise, but it's a cha- it's essentially a charity scheme where he's hitting up like wealthy Texas widows, lit- like for for money to aid the Contras. There's there's a comical uh, store like story in here about a, la- a helicopter that is named the Lady Ellen in honor of the woman who gives like a million dollars to aid the the rebels. Uh, so that that's what that's what North is doing in uh, Nicaragua in like 1984. Right. And and to be clear, so North, in order to establish some plausible deniability, although this immediately messes it up, um, has a number of lieutenants. So he is this guy named Richard Secord, who's responsible for some of the arms purchases. He has a guy under him named Robert Owen, who acts as a military courier. Um, and for the actual uh, solicitation of widows, he's got these two Reagan fundraisers from the 80 campaign, one named Miller and one named Channel. And he literally will be in a room with like the widow and these guys give a pitch uh, about how the Contras need money um, and then say, it's illegal for me to ask you for money. So I'm going to leave the room. And then the other guys would actually collect the check um, for obvious reasons that that isn't actually a successful defense uh, of illegal activity. Part of the whole process of, you know, creating this uh, situation of plausible deniability is that, for example, Secord is not actually a government agent uh he's a he's a he's in private business and he's running uh this uh he you know he's running his own business essentially delivering uh money and arms to the contras of course he's skimming off the top um but he's not you know he's not himself a government agent but he's somebody that north knows from his time in the marines uh a lot of uh, a lot of these other guys are also kind of these non-governmental not officially governmental hangers on uh in order to create uh, a situation where you can deny that, you know, the government itself is actually involved. But of course, there's extensive documentation of communication um, from North up to McFarlane, who, of course, was was literally uh, head of the NSC at the time with uh, Casey, who was the CIA head at the time. Um, there is uh, with this guy named Dwayne Claridge, who who is a just a comic book villain. He's literally introduced in the book as the CIA head for Central and Latin America, who wears a monocle and Italian silk safari suits, um, and who appears to be incredibly eager to uh, fund the Contras and kill Cubans. Um, He's basically later promoted out of this to head all Europe, which is a great example of how the CIA views personnel. Um, And the first arms deal they do, I mean, this is, you know, again, maybe first time as far as next time as tragedy. The first arms deal they do is... They get money from the Saudis and they route it to a Canadian arms dealer to a Portuguese supplier of Soviet surplus arms from the People's Republic of China, uh, which are then sent to the Contras, all with this guy Secord taking a 40% markup, which he deems as standard. Uh, You know, I I don't know what's the standard uh, slush fund markup in arms deals, but there was a standard that they had. Yeah, it's I mean, it's very interesting to kind of follow um, the to, you know, as, as you read the book, if you do read the book, uh, it's very interesting to try and follow like these really convoluted operations that they engage in. You know, part of the problem, of course, is that they can't actually send anything from, um, you know, from 
the United States to any of these countries. They need to disguise all of the uh, all of the transit of you know either whether it's arms or whether it's money. They need to disguise all of this. So this operation of routing things through Portugal, for example, was uh, you know intended to disguise the fact that these arms are coming from uh, the United States. Um, and in the beginning, a lot of this, I mean, it's really a, uh, a, a poorly orchestrated operation. Uh, the, all the evidence suggests that they, you know, they really had no idea what they were getting into. They thought this would be pretty straightforward. Uh, but then it turns out that, uh, logistically, this is all very complicated. Um, the, uh, airstrips that they want to use are in like terrible conditions there's, there's one in Costa Rica that every time it rains can't be used, which like Costa Rica is a rainforest country on the equator. So right. So somebody should have maybe thought of that. Yeah. But uh, in any case, there's so like the airstrips are in terrible conditions. Uh, they have absolutely no coordination with the people that they're actually trying to deliver the arms to. So a bunch of the missions just end up being aborted because they just can't find the people that they're supposed to airdrop the, uh, the stuff to. Um, the... Contra forces are also in conflict among themselves uh, in as to who represents the kind of like the legitimate opposition uh, because they're based in different parts of the country. They have different uh, they have different loyalties. And, uh, you know, to some extent, they're trying to kind of help out both of them. Uh, but this causes a lot of friction because it's also it, it drags into the story um, the countries that are actually neighboring Nicaragua. Uh some of which do not want to be participants in this. So, for example, uh, in w- one thing that causes like serious problems is that in 1985, I believe, uh, uh, Costa Rica elects a new president, Oscar Arias. Uh, Arias is not inclined to follow his predecessor in allowing uh, the Contras to be based out of uh, the, you know, uh, the northern border of his country and using their airstrips. Uh, so this causes like a lot of uh, headaches for, uh, you know, for this operation that North is running. Right. And and there's a, a real point which should be made, which is as slapdash and kind of, uh, you know, at least I find it comic as this operation was, it really actually created the possibility of spreading, first of all, it was uh, instigating a uh, the continuation of a civil war in Nicaragua, and it and it risked spreading that war out to uh, you know Honduras, Costa Rica, and El Salvador, um, and the the responsibility for doing that, you know, never really seems to be considered. You you have governments who are somewhat corrupt, admittedly, but who are sort of desperate to. Um, you know, make nice to the superpower above them, but also not be engulfed in this Contra Sandinista conflict um, and who are, uh, you know, saying, please don't do this. Or if you're going to do this, I need quid pro quos from Reagan, which, of course, was also illegal uh, and which uh, North, uh, at least at at some points, is just throwing out right and left um, in order to get uh, arms to the Contras or to get landing permissions for, for his airplanes. Uh, North is a really, I mean, he's a very interesting figure, obviously, uh, in in this in this story. And one of the salient points that Byrne point brings up is that, uh, you know, as much as, for example, like Urbanifar was like, you know, this pathological liar who was playing off everybody, uh, North was not much better. I mean, he was uh, he was engaged in you know deceit on multiple levels, not just uh, to, for example, the um, the Contra representatives that he was speaking to or the foreign uh, 
heads of state that he was actually att- attempting to influence, but also his own, you know, his own people. Um, and uh, all of this was happening with the uh, explicit approval of Robert McFarlane. Uh, North was his, essentially his staffer. He was an NSC staffer. McFarlane was running the NSC until 1985 or 86, at which point he stepped down, although he did not exit the picture. Well, and then James Poindexter, who who replaces... John Poindexter. Sorry, sorry. John Poindexter, who replaces uh, McFarlane, it does not put a stop to these operations. I mean, that's, that's I think, one of the interesting things is, is you keep on waiting for a grown-up... I mean, there are memos between Schultz and and, uh, and and Kasper Weinberger, who was the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense at the time, being like, I completely disagree with this plan, or this, this plan seems awful and illegal, and then everyone moves forward with it, which is a very weird uh, thing to do uh, in a memo. But, but and, and when Poindexter comes in... Uh, having, I think, somewhat as a reputation as an apolitical goody-two-shoes Reagan apparatchik, um, he immediately sort of goes along uh, with the scheme. By the way, if the name John Poindexter uh, sounds familiar to you, uh, he also reappears at the, you know, the the second Bush administration. Uh, He was, I can't remember whether he was, uh, what his specific role was, whether he was again in the NSC or something else, but he is a guy who comes up in 2004 with this thing called total information awareness, which was basically his plan to spy on every American, uh, which is what we're living now. So uh, good times. John Point Dexter uh, continues to influence uh, American politics. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of unfamiliar names, but if you want some names that you might have heard of later, uh, John Negroponte, the ambassador to Honduras at the time, of course, ambassador to Iraq during Bush II. Um, Bob Gates is a deputy director of the CIA at the time who knew about Iran-Contra. Uh, Colin Powell is actually a, uh, an, an aide in the DOD who has a role in some of the arms transfers. Um, Richard Pearl, Paul Wolfowitz, Elliot Abrams are all staffers. So it, it really, I guess, you know, look, foreign policy staff, you want to maintain some continuity. But they're, the entire Bush II apparatus uh, really all uh, is, is deeply involved in Iran-Contra, uh, which is, you know, um, was actually surprising to me. I, I knew they were kind of scumbags, but I didn't know the uh, extent of their scumbagginess. The, the main problem facing the, the Contra operation is that, well, first of all, it's uh, as uh, some, pe- some of the uh, people are cited calling it amateur hour in terms of just the logistics. But more importantly, the money just keeps running out. Byrne doesn't go into a great deal of detail as to why that is happening. Um, I suspect a lot of it is probably has to do with the fact that the Contras themselves did not do a very good job of... Uh, uh, tracking their resources. But in any case, the money just keeps running out. And uh, the sense that you get throughout the whole story is that, um, you know, North is constantly on edge. He's constantly talking to people about how we have to find more money, more money, because the Contras just can't, they're not going to be able to survive another month without these resources. And this is the nexus which leads uh, uh, to the connection with Iran. The hyphen. The hy- Yeah, this is where the hyphen comes from, right? The thing is that because McFarlane is involved actually in both sides of this deal. It turns out that, uh, you know, because the the Iranians are not just the, the Iranian scheme is not just just arms for hostages, or just arms for influence, but there's also money involved. They come up with this idea that they're going to get take the money that is uh, being generated from the arms sales to Iran, and they're going to divert this to the Contras. 
And the actual amount of money diverted doesn't end up being that much. I think at one point it's maybe six million. Yeah, it's somewhere around six million, or at least right. one of the diversions is around Which, six million. Which, you know, just again, for context, the, the Saudis have given 32 million. I believe the Sultan of Brunei is on the hook for 10 later, although it, it never ends up getting there. Um, they go to South Africa at one point, I think, with a similar ask, but they don't want to ruin the reputation of the death squads in Nicaragua with apartheid government, so they decide to not get money from the South Africans. But it, it, the hyphen is not much money. It's just the fact that it's insanely illegal. I mean, a diversion of uh, an already illegal arms sale to go in to support the account of someone who Congress also has said you cannot fund under any circumstances uh, is pretty brilliant. It's so brilliant, in fact, that the book is kind of actually a little unclear on who comes up with the idea. Um, you know, maybe there's a suggestion that Gorbanifar came up with it. That might be Ali North covering himself. Um, I think Ali North says that Gorbanifar told him in a bathroom at one point in a meeting that wasn't recorded. Yeah, there's some idea that uh, some insinuation that Gorbanifar is at least partially responsible for this uh, for this scheme. He should be responsible for something. You know, this runs afoul of the prohibition generated by the Boland Amendment on funding regime change in Nicaragua. And at the same time as this is happening, at the same time as this scheme is being put into place to uh, funnel this money, which, by the way, again, uh, should be noted, everybody who's involved in this is taking a cut off the top. So that $6 million is not $6 million that Iran paid. It's the $6 million actually makes it to the Contras as opposed because uh, everybody who's involved is just like taking, you know, kickbacks from this. I mean, right. It's funny because Oliver North, who's who's so upstanding, it's purely his anti-communism is causing him to break all these laws. Um, there's a uh, $200,000 college fund that is diverted and set up for his kids. He buys a fancy new SUV uh, for $8,000 in cash. Uh, there are a couple other bizarre security expenses at his home because I think Oliver North legitimately had some paranoid mental health issues and thought that he was trying to be, uh, he and his family were, were at risk. While all of this is going on, North is becoming fed up with uh, Secord and his uh, his cronies that are operating in, in uh, Nicaragua because they're you know just doing such a shitty job of actually getting the stuff to the people that it has to go to. So he puts this in charge, this guy by the name of, I think, Richard Dutton, um, who is like, and who's also like ex-military, uh, has a lot more logistics experience. And uh, Dutton starts getting this operation kind of on a more solid footing. He's, uh, he figures out better ways to deliver, um, uh, to deliver the material. He did better ways to, um, coordinate flights and so on and so forth. And it finally seems at that moment that um, maybe this operation is actually going to achieve some success. Uh, so North is very uh, optimistic about this. Uh, but the thing that happens is that for reasons that are not entirely clear, uh, one of the delivery planes that is uh, that that is scheduled to make this flight to make a drop to the Contras uh, veers into uh, Nicaraguan territory in a location that is uh, that is covered by Sandinista uh, anti-aircraft artillery. And sure enough, uh, that plane gets shot down. Um, and uh, what do you know? There's also a survivor from the plane uh, who, of course, is you know now paraded on international TV and and this is where like kind of the the, the first uh, seam starts uh, coming apart. 
Right. So the Reagan administration has been lying to Congress for literally years about this. And Congress sort of knows it's being lied to. But right, when you have a guy on TV being like, oh, yeah, I was a CIA contractor, part of secret arms shipments to the Contras, it's it's a little harder to cover up. Um, I, I will note that Congress actually was trying to exert its oversight authority before this. I mean, there are some really there there were the amendments making these this funding illegal. There's some very sternly worded letters saying that, you know, they believe they're being deceived at various points. Um, but right. But this is something that breaks it open. There's also uh, two reporters uh, working for. Um, is it the Miami Herald? Yes. Uh, who who are who are looking into this in, in 1986. Um, uh, a guy named Avergan and a, and a guy named Honey. Um, I will note that the Republican playbook hasn't changed. The immediate assertion is that the press is working for Daniel Ortega and have been suborned by communists for daring to uh, investigate uh, what are these obvious illegalities. Or as you know, as we call it today, fake news. Right, exactly. If they had had Twitter at the time, they would have been punched by the president uh, on Twitter. So that's basically the scandal. I mean, it it, it uh, you know it collapses fairly quickly. There's one well, more little the, denouement in Iran. The, right, right. I was going to say that there's the Iranian side. But. Well, no, 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 please. Yeah. So in uh, you know on the Iranian side, these like frantic uh, uh, attempts to that you know that they're making to rescue the hostages, uh, sort of like they keep failing because uh, you know as we pointed out before, um, it turns out that Iran does not actually control Hezbollah. They can't really tell them what to do. Uh, Hezbollah is not inclined to release the hostages, um, but you know, but Gorbanifar keeps stringing them along because they're delivering more and more, uh, like more and more missiles to Iran, which they need. Um, and so eventually, this comes to a head, and the um, you know the Americans say like we're not going to deliver anything else un- unless like these conditions are met. And there's actually this meeting between North and a highly placed. Uh, official in the Iranian government where they come up with this list of bullet points. Uh, But the problem is that the list of bullet points that North takes back to Poindexter is out of whack with the bullet points that are, that the Iranians take back with them. So like that agreement just can't work because there's completely different expectations on both sides and North there's like good evidence that North actually knows this and he's just completely bullshitting. Um, But eventually one of the hostages is released and there's a story that's published in the Lebanese newspaper that, that unlocks the uh, second half. The Lebanese magazine Ashira exposed the arrangement on November 3rd, 1986 uh, and this was the first public reporting of the Iranian side of the scandal, the weapons for hostages deal. Um, and, you know, then the Iranian government confirms the story uh, and then finally Reagan speaks. And it's the first time that the administration has had to confront it, uh, which is interesting because the administration basically doesn't speak after the Contra side of the deal is exposed or rather after the funding of the Contra is exposed. But but Reagan gets on television uh, and and says, you know, that, um, yes, we were back-channeling with Iran. This, you know, was basically to say, look, the, Iran could take the step to release all the hostages uh, and use its influence to do so, but we weren't trading arms for, for hostages. Um, which leads to one of the most amazing quotes of the scandal. Reagan gets on television and says, and maybe we can actually quote this in, in the episode instead of me reading it, 
A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. A great Ronald Reagan statement, if there ever was one. Um, and that really, that book ends the thing. I mean, the rest of it is all just investigations. Um, there are some kind of crazy investigations. One is run by Senator Tower, uh, Brent Scowcraft, and there's a third person on it. Um, and Reagan appoints these guys. And I think one of the really, truly amazing things is that uh, McFarlane had worked as an aide for Tower. So, I mean, there's just no plausible deniability that, like, this is a truly independent investigation. Um, it's certainly not truly bipartisan, for example. And, and the second major investigation is run by uh, Lawrence Walsh from the Office of the Independent Counsel. So uh, Walsh himself, you know, is a long term Republican, uh, you know, served as a deputy attorney general under Eisenhower, then went into private practice. And then, you know, now he's being brought back uh, to run this investigation. He's uh, sort of nominally seen as, as a credible, you know, uh, Im relatively impartial um, investigator by everybody, well, by most people involved. Uh, you certainly can't accuse him of, like, you know, being a partisan hack. Um, and, you know, Walsh takes his uh, role in this investigation quite seriously. He starts, um, you know, uh, demanding, you know, various uh, documents and stuff. And this is the point where I think the way that the Walsh investigation ends up foundering, I think in large way is uh, lays the foundation for the kinds of stonewalling that we're going to see in later administrations. So basically, Walsh starts demanding documents from uh, from North, who, by the way, has been destroying documents all this time. As soon as uh, stuff came out, as, as soon as the the Contra side of things broke, uh, North has been engaged in widespread destruction of classified documents. Although even prior to that, Burns suggests that North has been editing documents uh, in response to possible uh, congressional request for information, which is which is also kind of amazing. He and um, I, I believe McFarlane, right, are are in. There's a congressional request uh, coming out of I believe the the House version of the SISI, the House Committee on uh, Special Committee on Intelligence, that they basically stonewall. But there's a discussion between uh, North and and again I think it's McFarlane, although I could be wrong on that. On on basically which passages of these documents they're going to edit uh, to deliberately falsify information. One, one of the other comical episodes I just feel like the need to touch on is that um, North has his secretary by the name, by the name of Hall. And Fawn and, Hall. Uh, Fawn Hall. That's right. Not only not only does he like weirdly like loan her $60 for vacation, uh, but also uh, she is responsible for like two major screw ups that actually like seriously impede the things that he wants to get done. So the first thing that she does is, is that the money that the Sultan of Brunei was going to transfer to the Contras was supposed to go to like this one account and she mistyped the account number that was that it was supposed to go to and so the money never ended up getting there and the second thing that she screwed up was that north had her smuggle classified documents out of like the rooms where they were contained so that he could edit them but uh what she did instead was that she accidentally put the edited copy and the original copy back together into like into the file so that when the investigators got their hands on it they were like oh uh, they could see exactly what, what North had been doing. So uh, I think one of the notes that, that uh, Jerry brings up here is too is important is that um, the office that Walsh had no longer exists today. 
So, you know, we now have, obviously, um, Robert Mueller, who is the uh, special counsel who's investigating uh, the Trump uh, possible obstruction of justice and Trump possible campaign, possible collusion with Russians, which I'm on the record as stating I I didn't think happened. So we'll see if that's true or not. But Mueller is is fireable by uh, by Trump. Um, you know, Trump can direct uh, uh, the deputy uh, attorney general, since Sessions recused himself, to fire Mueller. Walsh was in an interesting position because Walsh was unfireable. And that's something that later administrations have learned from. Um, you know, well, Congress did not renew the independent counsel statute. Um, and I think administrations have been very loath to put themselves at the risk of having themselves be possibly investigated by someone who they couldn't dismiss. Right. Um, but and in this investigation and in the resistance to um, the Walsh investigation, I think we see the the roots of this kind of this theory of uh, the unitary executive, which is like, you know, not a real thing, I personally think. But it's nevertheless something that's you know promulgated by uh, a number of uh, legal thinkers uh, within both the Reagan administration, especially the Bush administration. Um and um, the assertion is made that basically Congress has n- not only is is it like does Congress have no jurisdiction in foreign policy, but also you can't demand any of these documents because they're you know constrained by executive privilege. Uh, and uh, the CIA, the NSC, the Department of Defense all do their utmost to prevent Walsh from getting his hands on these documents. Uh, some of them only become available much later. So that's, you know, Byrne uh, is able to obviously make use of uh, information that Walsh did not have access to. And uh, a lot of it impedes the investigation that, you know, Walsh is trying to conduct because what he's trying to do is he's trying to in- indict uh, all of these guys as, you know, for conspiracy charges, essentially. But lacking the access to the documents that he would need to prove that. Uh, makes it very difficult for him to proceed. Right. Most of the eventual indictments actually become come down on perjury or obstruction of justice because that's easier to show. Misappropriation of government funds. Right. Rather than, I mean, the, the very clear uh, criminal activities, which were outlined in, in many of the documents that write, have later come to light, uh, whether because of FOIA or whether because uh, privilege had lapsed or, or through other sources, and, and so that, that Byrne and the, the National Security Archive have access to. I think that there's a, a an important point here, which is that even if you are a defender of the unitary executive, the actions taken were illegal. So if Reagan had wanted to assert that the Boland Amendment was unconstitutional because the unitary executive meant that, I'm not talking about here on document privilege, but on the ability to be unconstrained in foreign policy activities, then, you know, the government could have made a legal challenge uh, to that amendment. They did not do so um, and instead operated as if they believed what they were doing was illegal and including in committing many violations of law. And I think that that's a real problem for a sort of um, post hoc conservative defense of Iran-Contra, which is, oh, you know, the executive was allowed to do all those things anyway. This is just Democrats trying to mess things up for the administration, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, Actually, no, even if you had that theory of government legitimately, um, there were ways to challenge um, 
and and you might have even had courts very favorable to you. I mean, the courts have certainly been favorable to the Bush and Obama administrations when um, when expansive theories of the executive have been proposed to them. Um, and, but the Reagan administration did not choose to go down that route at all. Uh, and and almost everyone in the Reagan administration, up to the highest levels, including Reagan and, and Bush, were heavily implicated uh, uh, in the scandal. You know, the punchline to all this is that so the convictions of North and Poindexter are thrown out on appeal over essentially technicalities. The decision is made by a three judge panel uh, that splits in both cases along strictly partisan lines. One of the things affects, by the way, Michael Flynn, there's a reason that Congress didn't want to give Flynn immunity for testifying before Congress, because it's one of the things that led to Norse. the, the dismissal of his convictions on appeal was the claim that the later criminal convictions had relied on testimony that he'd given uh, to Congress under immunity. And so uh, basically Congress today uh, does not want to extend that same uh, privilege to his uh, eerily uh, alike analog in, in Flynn. That's right. And, uh, and the people who are not whose convictions are not overturned on appeal are pardoned by Bush, some of them preemptively. So at the very end of his term, right before uh, Clinton is about to be inaugurated, Bush pardons Weinberger and a bunch of other guys um, who were, you know, who were all uh, involved in this and uh, for whom indictments were were pending. Um, Walsh obviously is just furious about this. Byrne quoting Walsh. In a speech two years later, Walsh was still incensed. President Bush's pardon not only prevented punishment for flagrant crimes, but it prevented a trial which would have exposed more of the truth about Iran-Contra. He made it plain that he believed Bush had acted largely out of self-interest. Reporting to Congress, he wrote, President Bush cannot escape the appearance that he wished to avoid the public airing of facts about Iran-Contra that would have occurred at trial. To Newsweek, he said, it's hard to find an adjective strong enough to characterize a president who has such contempt for honesty. <laughs> Immediately after the pardon and uh, the, after the pardon announcement, he declared the Iran-Contra cover-up, which has continued for more than six years, has now been completed with the pardon of Casper Weinberger. Yeah, I mean, there's an important note here, which is that we all tend to think of um, Bush as, as maybe Bush one as maybe the last good Republican president uh, because, you know, he... Uh, wasn't a fascist, I suppose. But the the fact of the matter is, is that um, as the book shows and, and contemporaneous documents, primary sources show, um, Bush was aware of all of the details of Iran-Contra, uh, including uh, the illegality. Um, there's one point where Bush changes uh, the timing of a foreign policy trip because of one of the meetings in Tehran that was going on, which is, I mean, again, very clear evidence that he knew exactly what was going on um, there are notes from meetings with Bush that are simply implausible. Uh, you know, you have a guy who was in the airfields in El Salvador running stuff to the Contras, who was an old CIA contact of Bush, goes up to Bush to brief him on it. Um, and specifically in his note saying, oh, you know, he's going to brief Bush on, on how he felt he was being screwed and supplying the Contras. And um, the, you know, Bush's secretary reports the meeting is that they only discussed El Salvador. So, I mean, the deal is we had two presidents in a row who completely escaped any liability um, for their actions. And and only that, but basically are regarded um, now, ironically, by the right as a hero and by the left as sort of, you know, the last good one. Um, You know, I think neither today in, in Trump's America, you know, Reagan and Bush are highly regarded, 
when they were at the top of a criminal conspiracy that generated what should have been, um, you know, convictions for the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Like, these are real people. It wasn't like a handful of rogue operatives. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I think that the um, the Iran-Contra scandal is really kind of a Rosetta Stone uh, for reading the psychology of the modern right, because the, the, the degree of violation of laws was pretty unquestionable like i mean everything that they did like the destruction of the documents the you know the running of arms all of this stuff is clearly clearly illegal uh it they they stonewalled every aspect of the investigation and uh at the end in the end nothing happened like nobody suffered any actual consequences for it oliver north is you know was was turned into this martyr of the he right ran for uh, senate and almost won in when was that 94 and, you know, he was like a talk show celebrity. I, I mean, like a right wing talk radio celebrity. Bush obviously went on to serve a term as, you, as the president of the U.S., despite the fact that important indictments in the case came out right before the election. Actually. Reagan left office with an all time high at the time. I believe it's something like close to 70 percent of Americans viewed him favorably. I, I think for a part of, you know, you quoted Byrne at the very beginning of the pod, but the American people um we're basically like ah sounds complicated yeah it's it's very right it's very hard i think to keep you know attention on a scandal of this length and complexity uh precisely you know precisely because there were so many principles there were so many different uh aspects to it there were the there were so many different violations that it's just like if you are an ordinary citizen um and not a political junkie you're probably not going to pay attention to four years of investigation and unlike in watergate again the wrong lessons were learned said charles fried and i think that's exactly right unlike in watergate republicans didn't fold republicans at no point said hey yeah you know we committed massive violations of law we're going to stop the party. Instead, they presumed correctly that they could outlast the scandal. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, Clinton, Clinton's impeachment to me, um, not six years later, for basically getting a blowjob from an intern, I think I'm actually much more angry about that now than I was prior to researching Iran-Contra. Like, it, it seems... The, you know, the Republicans, I think, learned the lesson of, oh, we can tie up an administration through, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of, it's not fabricated. I mean, he sexually harassed his intern, but Republicans didn't clearly care about that. Uh, and basically, they, they drew the political lesson of politics is war. And they also drew the lesson that if they don't concede, um, there would never be any consequences for other legal consequences or for their agenda. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you believe that the Clinton impeachment made, you know, was 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 good and it made sense and, you know, Clinton was bad for like lying to Congress, um, you know, all of that holds triple or quadruple or even 10 times uh, for Iran-Contra. And yet like, there's absolutely no I mean, you know, it's worth pointing out this hypocrisy, I think, not because I think that right. not I, to I'm defend gonna, Bill Clinton. Yeah. Uh, not to defend Bill Clinton and not to change like the minds of Republicans, but just to under for people to understand that the the position taken here by uh, conservatives is that like we can just we can just do this and there will be no consequences. And when the tables are turned, uh, nobody is actually going to pay attention to the fact that we were hypocrites before. So uh, and I think that this you know, Oliver North strategic- called for Clinton's impeachment. 
this strategic <laughs> assumption has been repeatedly validated. And, uh, you know, in my mind, the uh, burden here is on the media, I think, to at least make this information public, you know, hold uh, the, you know, the conversation to some level of like to some scrutiny to some level of honesty and not to just let people get away with saying whatever they want and i think that goes to the to trump i mean you know we joked at the beginning of the pod but honestly nothing that trump has done yet while deeply immoral differs from previous republican administrations in fact very arguably unless document evidence surfaces um it it seems clear that the reagan administration's dealings with foreign powers who at the time were, were actively in conflict with the United States were far greater um, and involved far more illegality than what is even alleged of, of the Trump administration. And I say this by, by no means as a fan of the Trump administration, who I think is a vile stain on American history, but rather as an attempt to try and I think agree with the thesis that the Jerry's advanced a, a number of times, which is that this just has to be viewed in a continuity. You can't like, I don't know, is it Bartlett or whoever, who's, who's the, there's some former Reagan administration official yeah, running Bruce, around yeah, Bruce Bartlett, yeah, Bruce Bartlett, Bartlett, Bartlett being Bartlett. like, well, you know, this never would have happened in my day. We had ideas. And it's like, you're, it did, it happen. did, it happen. did happen. It like literally happened, um, you know, with arguably actually someone that, that I think many Republicans would consider worse. There's a great quote uh, that uh, Burns sources from uh, Lee Hamilton, who is uh, the chair of the U.S. House Select Committee on uh, investigating Iran-Contra. Uh, here's here's uh, Hamilton. I learned that people in the White House will do anything to protect the president. It is the mantra. It is the reason for their being there. Protect the president at all costs. Fall on your sword. That was very apparent with Poindexter North, but it's true with any aid to the president at any time. It was very strong with Schultz and Casper Weinberger. So... Mutatis Mutandis, the names that I think could very easily be true for, uh, you know, for the Trump administration. That's what we're seeing now. Right. We're seeing that from Sessions. We're seeing that from, uh, you know, from people like Tillerson, despite the fact that he's being hung out to dry at every opportunity. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody's just uh, decided that they're not going to take violations of the law or violation or violations of, you know, longstanding U.S. policy at all seriously. Right. Actually, it's funny. I mean, again, the analogies really grow wild. But, you know, Schultz was the one who was most screwed by Iran-Contra, probably, because he kept on arguing against the policies that everyone else went along with. Uh, and yet, you know, obviously comes out looking looking very poor at the end of any any reasonable view of the scandal in terms of what he knew about it and what what his real possibilities were. And it's like to Tillerson, it's like, look, this is how history is going to look. You know, you should probably resign because, you know, having Jared Kushner leak every time you like have a fight with a White House staffer to Politico uh isn't 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 a great look you don't build any dignity by being the guy who went along with all the shitty plans but you know uh got out there that you were you know you had a fight about them uh every week or so yeah i mean schultz is the only one who uh comes out of this even remotely looking like he had any sort of uh ethical compass at all not very much of one but at least he had like some notion of hey what we're doing is illegal now the problem is that his response to this illegality was to try to remain uninformed so that nobody could accuse him of like knowing what was going on but but like you know at least he had some qualms about all of this you know you look back on it and you look back on the record and 
he looks real bad. Not as bad as everybody else, but, you know, he's the least bad of all the really bad people. And I think, I mean, a real a real point here, which is terrifying, is that, you know, Trump is a monstrous human being, personally, ethically. But if he wasn't, if he wasn't, you know, tweeting out feuds with journalists and being a sexual assaulter and incredibly creepy all the time, um, and he was just a normal, white-haired Republican apparatchik, I think the the thing is the most thing of is the most who does that describe? Okay, my my boy Willard. But like the the problem is that most of the damage presidents can do, believe it or not, is not picking Twitter fights with female celebrities on on you know like most of the damage they can do is especially through foreign policy, you know, continuing uh, entanglements that lead to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people including tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of children. And like, I'm just going to put that on there. Like that is, or taking away healthcare from millions of Americans leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans. That that's something that any Republican would do. And, and I, I don't want to sound like the intercept because I have some issues with them, but I do think that the emphasis on Trump's sort of personal style distracts from the, um, moral ills of, of the agenda and the willingness of uh, Republican politicians having been taught by Watergate and then by Iran-Contra that they can literally do whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, I think all these things about like every time, you know, you turn on Twitter every single day and there's like another explosion about something Trump said, like I, I to me, all that it, like doesn't it doesn't really matter. I mean, yes, he's terrible. But like what it, what did you expect at this point, I guess, is, is my question. You know, we're, we're, we should all be newer to this. Um, the focus really should be on uh, on policy and on like what Republicans as a party are are doing. I wanted to read uh, at some length this this one excerpt from um, from Burns book, because I think it actually really nails down uh, what I think is kind of the fundamental problem that uh, Iran-Contra engendered and that we're still living with today. Uh, it's, it's a section. It's part of a section that uh, is titled the president versus Congress. So here is Byrne. The most pernicious outcome of the Iran-Contra scandal was, paradoxically, its lack of impact on the public and on government accountability. This becomes clearer when comparing the aftermath of Iran-Contra with the Watergate hearings and the intelligence inquiries of the Church and Pike committees in the mid-1970s. The Cold War-era national security system, which made it possible for the Iran and Contra operations to occur, emerged essentially unchanged after the congressional legal procedures had run their course and was therefore in no better position to prevent future abuses along comparable lines. In fact, the U.S. political and judicial oversight systems failed to prevent uncover or ultimately address the consequences of the scandal despite legislation and presidential orders prohibiting the sale of weapons to terrorists negotiating with terrorists or funneling military aid to the contras the reagan administration managed to pull off each of those activities the operations went undiscovered for more than a year in the case of iran and for almost two years on the contra side both disclosures happened only because of events beyond u.s control the bubbling over of a political feud in iran resulting in the leak of the mcfarland mission to a lebanese news outlet and the shooting down of an enterprise cargo plane by a young sandinista soldier if not for these two chance occurrences, there's no telling how long the operations might have continued or whether U.S. law enforcement, enterprising journalists, or other means would ever have exposed them. 
Um, after the operations became public knowledge, the stage was set for the U.S. political and legal systems to try and fill their, fulfill their missions. Insofar as introducing mechanisms needed to avert a similar scandal, it is clear they failed. After holding full-blown televised hearings, uncovering thousands of documents, and interviewing hundreds of witnesses, the Presidential Commission and Congressional Select Committees could not produce a strong enough case for remedial action to obtain a consensus among the membership and translate the recommendations into meaningful legislation. Although some minority members, conspicuously Richard Cheney, categorically opposed granting Congress any measure of influence over policy at the expense of the executive branch, partisan politics, prioritizing short-term political interests over the risks of an institutional imbalance vis-a-vis -vis the White House, were an important factor. So anyway, I, I think that yeah. that very accurately sums up the story of like that we are living today, right? Like if you, again, mutatis mutandis, all those names, like that could literally be the state of things as, as it stands now, as it stood after, uh, you know, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and uh, the sanctioning of torture, the sanctioning of torture, like every every time something like this happens, um, you know, the, the system uh, does not deliver on, you know, these reforms that it's allegedly supposed to be able to uh, implement, uh, and which which is why, you know, when people talk about, uh, oh, you know, the institutions will save us, the institutions will hold up. I think it's worth asking the question of like, what does that mean? Like, what do you mean the institution? What will the institutions actually do? Because when you look at each one of these cases, um, you know, the, le the lesson that I, I'm learning from this is that uh, what the institutions do is they just acquiesce to the law breaking and we all move on with our lives and nothing changes. I think the only thing I can add, because I completely agree, so as not to maybe be so dismal, is that I think this points to the strong importance of change at the ballot box as opposed to hoping for sort of Hail Marys from Republican Congress people or Republican judges to address criminal activity. It hasn't happened in the past. The likely evidence is that it, it won't happen in the future. And it really means that if we want better, more, more moral policies enacted, uh, we need to vote for people who will carry them out. Um, and, and maybe vote for people who will make, uh, you know, good government an actual, an actual part of it, part of their mission. But, but I really think that if you, if you want to see uh, fewer foreign policy disasters, uh, you need to elect presidents who have radically different visions of foreign policy. And, and I would say not just not just presidents, but, uh, you know, the, the reason why that section is called uh, the president versus the Congress um, is is because, you know, in the last um, 30 or so years, there's been this dramatic shift uh, towards executive authority, not just on uh, foreign policy, but on a whole large number of, of, uh, of issues that should properly be the domain of legislatures. And the legislature has proven itself completely unable to counteract any of that. When when Republicans control the legislature, what they primarily do is they just like stymie uh, Democratic efforts to do anything. And when Democrats control the legislature, uh, you know, as, as has been, for example, under Barack Obama, there was, you know, there was so much like good feeling about, oh, like we're finally going to uh, we're finally going to do this, uh, you know, healthcare reform. We're going to pass like whatever our like domestic agenda that there was just no like uh, appreciation. And of course, you know, to be fair, this was Obama's first term um, where foreign uh, policy was less prominent, but there was no appreciation that, oh, we're going to be facing the same problem of like unitary presidential action um, down the road. And because it's our guy in the office, you know, we're going to we're not going to worry about this right now. Um, but you have to worry about it. You have to worry about it when it's your guy and you have to worry about it when it's the other guy, because 
the alternative is just this escalating ratchet of that that keeps transferring power to the executive branch. Right. And I mean, Congress extended the Patriot Act under President Obama. Congress does not did not check uh, Obama's surveillance authorities. In fact, ironically, the same executive order which justified uh, the Reagan's initial support of the Contras, EO twelve triple three also governs the surveillance state. It governs the executive's direction of surveillance. And, you know, this is a place where, as Jerry just noted, Congress has continued to defer to uh, the expansion of imperial power. And, you know, we did a bad job of opposing this under uh, Obama. And I think, you know, it is difficult to imagine um, Hillary Clinton, had she been elected president, although I think she would have been far better, withdrawing any of those parts of the surveillance state or deferring to Congress further. Um, and I think this this absolutely needs to be an agenda uh, for, for people running for Congress uh, to try and take some of that power back. So I think that's that's the moral that uh, uh, that I think we uh, come up with from, um, you know, our foray into the details of Iran-Contra. Uh, we hope that this has been interesting for folks. Uh, it is it is quite complicated. Uh, do recommend the Malcolm Byrne book. It's very good, extremely detailed. Uh, it really walks you through um, the entire complexity of this of this situation. And that's it. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, we don't have a topic lined up for the next episode yet, but we'll, we'll either come up with one in the interim or we will have uh, possibly a guest. We haven't figured that out yet. Thanks, Jerry. All right. Thank you for listening.